Stand-up comedy is in the midst of a cultural resurgence, with new specials available seemingly on every streaming service on a weekly basis. A new book from a Portland author goes deep on the trailblazing women who burst onto the scene, grabbed the mic, and changed the medium for the better. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, you'll hear my colleague Amy Wong's conversation with Sean Levy. Levy was film critic at The Oregonian from 1997 until 2012, and he's written a slew of books. His latest, In on the Joke, looks at the original queens of stand-up comedy. They talked about those pioneers, how their work still resonates today, and what modern-day female comics are shaking up the industry. Here's their conversation. All right. Well, thanks for making some time to chat with me. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. I particularly enjoyed learning about folks that I was not familiar with, but we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, uh, let's start with uh, what is it, Sean, that appeals to you about stand-up comedy in general? You know, it's 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 a pretty unique art form and form of expression. It used to be just uh, a form of entertainment, and today it's a form of um sort of uh, uh, social consciousness raising or self-identification. It's one of the few art forms that that is sort of, uh, as a given, a kind of combat with an audience. They come to laugh, but you need to convince them at a certain level. You know, when when we go see music, we're not like, yeah, well, you know, make make me tap my feet. (laughs) Why don't you? And if you don't, I I feel entitled to yell back at you. But comedy has that, that element of danger and... Um, I also admire the way comedians are like surfers. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they they paddle out into the conditions and the big wave, little wave, they got to find something to connect with and something to ride on. And uh, they're, they're really, they're playing live. They're alone like golfers. You know, they don't have teammates they can pass the ball to or, you know, let them defend their man if their man gets away from them. So it's 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 a very interesting and exciting form of expression. So who were some of the stand-up comedians that you kind of imprinted on? Boy, I'm born in 1961. So really the, the um, Saturday Night Live comedians, you know, I grew up in a house that was very showbiz aware. So I would have seen many of the women who are in my book watching variety shows with my parents um, on my own, uh, the Saturday Night Live era of stand-up comedians. So the, the, the Titanic figures just before SNL, George Carlin and Richard Pryor. But then that whole comedy boom that was rising, there was a nightclub in New York, the comic strip, that did not check IDs. <laughs> And the drinking age in New York was 18. And when my friends and I were in high school, we could get into this place. Mm-hmm. And we saw the young Jerry Seinfeld, Eddie Murphy, um, Carol Leifer. You know, there, there were people who are now, you know, superstars or legends or, or crucial figures were just, you know, they'd finish their set and they'd go have a drink in the bar and you could go talk to them if you wished. Wow. So. Comedy was was in my in on my radar screen for a long time when I was a young man. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, how did how did this particular book come to be? Well, I had um, was working with my agent and my editor at Doubleday on a follow up to my Chateau Marmont book from 2019, mm-hmm. and one of the ideas I had was a book called Wise Ass Nation, <laughs> which was about the rise of politics 
in comedy. Mm -hmm. You go from an era in the 1950s where politics was virtually taboo on the comedy stage. You know, guys would make jokes about uh, Dwight Eisenhower having a bad day on the golf course. That's, that would be as, as topical as they got. And now you go see comedians where everything they say is political. Mm -hmm. you know, Trevor Noah and John Stewart, mm -hmm. these sort of people. So in that proposal uh, for that book, one of the proposed chapters was the rise of women on the stand-up stage. And that was what Doubleday picked up on, and that was, that was where they went. So when my agent told me that that was what they were interested in, it was one of those times where I, I could see the book sort of flower in my head right away. So mm -hmm. I was happy to pursue it. That's a great sign right there when you just immediately have a vision of how it's going to look. Yeah. Yeah, I've had it two or three times, Tap. Would I've been lucky. <laughs> Sean, how did you select the women you profiled in this book? You wrote about, you know, really big names like Joan Rivers and Minnie Pearl and Phyllis Diller, but you also wrote about women, uh, frankly, if you're not a, a real comedy follower, you may not have, you probably haven't heard of them, like Jean Carroll and Toadie Field and Moms Babley. Well, I knew I wanted the book to end with Joan Rivers. She strikes me as sort of like the Beatles. She combines so many threads of what came before her. And her her appearance on the scene marked a, um, you know, a, a, a sort of a tipping point after which, you know, women would still have a very hard time in the comedy world. But the idea of them mm -hmm. succeeding as stand-ups was no longer completely unimaginable mm -hmm. and then i was also clear in my head that they would have to be stand-up comedians um and the parlance of showbiz working in one mm -hmm. that they wouldn't be sketch comedians they wouldn't be comic actresses so this eliminated people like carol burnett lucille ball imogene coca very very funny women um mary tyler moore mm -hmm. who relied mainly on scripted material or, or on partnerships the exception was Elaine May because she was such a crucial figure in the creation of improv comedy. Mm -hmm. And of all the women in my book, I think she's the most irreplaceable if you look at the history of the art form because she was at the ground floor of something and a key contributor to something that's you know all practically universal in comedy today. And I wasn't sure at the start that I would include Minnie Pearl and Moms Mabley because it struck me that they were working in such um, such narrow paths of showbiz. Moms mm -hmm. on the black vaudeville and, and you know um, what they used to call the Chitlin circuit, and mainly playing black theaters for black audiences. And Minnie Pearl playing in in country venues, Grand Old Opry, Hee Haw, and county fairs, and that's state fairs and that sort of thing. But as I learned more about them, I was like, oh, these these women are exactly you know, exactly the sort of person I want to write about. So, and their stories were fascinating to me. You know, it's funny, Minnie Pearl was actually the first female stand-up comedian that I was aware of because my father, for for whatever reason, was a huge Hee Haw fan. And so, oh, that's funny. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, uh, Moms Mabley, you know, it's funny because the first time I ever heard of her was when Wanda Sykes played her on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how did that timing work in terms of the book? I'm just curious. I can't remember when that episode aired. Um, 
boy, I can't remember when it aired either. Um, but you know, the the existence of that show, I believe, made my book possible. Mm-hmm. You know, because people realized that there was this proto history of women in comedy, and you know, M- Midge Maisel is clearly based on Joan Rivers. The timing, the sort of milieu in which she begins her career, um, the brief association. Joan Rivers was much briefer with Lenny Bruce. Um, uh, it's it's uh, as my friend Brian Ellis, the Portland writer, says. It's a magic realist version <laughs> of the life of Joan Rivers. Um, Joan Rivers never played the Apollo and certainly didn't follow Mom's Mabley on the stage, but. You know, there's there's a lot in there that's about her, and and the very first version of the book, the the book proposal, was called the real Mrs. Maisel. Hmm. Interesting. Um, which nobody but me thought was appropriate. It was hard to title this book. Where, how how did the title come to be? Uh, you know, it was a a, um, a session between my editor and I. We had uh, I had changed the title so many times. My favorite of the abandoned titles was "Why isn't she singing?" <laughs> well, you know, because women women at the uh, at the microphone were expected to be singing; they were not expected to be telling jokes That's in the forties, fifties, and sixties. <laughs> um, and finally, we, you know, we we sat there batting around every phrase that could, you know, I- imply something about joke or laugh or humor or comedy. And in on the joke, you know, it, it means so many things, you know, mm-hmm. getting in on something and being mm-hmm. in on a joke and, and the struggle of an outsider trying to become an insider was all in there. But boy, it was it was not easy. And, and I'm not sure I even loved it until I saw the uh, book jacket mm-hmm. and saw the, the designer give it that neon neon font treatment. I was like, oh, this is good. Yeah, okay, let's keep it. Yeah. Uh, is is there anyone who isn't in the book that you really wish you could have included? Or do you feel like you've done a, a pretty good, you've given readers a pretty good overview? Well, um, I had to cut the book by about 30,000 words. Oh, um, oh wow. You know, I, 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 it would be convenient to blame COVID and the fact that I was you know, stuck in the house and overwrote. But the fact is, I've always written long. You can ask anyone at the copy desk. <laughs> and um, uh, so there are women who are in the book briefly who had whole chapters dedicated to them in my first complete draft. Uh-huh. Uh, Anne Mira, Hattie Noel, Jory Remus. And you know, they're they're you know, Anne Muir is not obscure, but her comedy career is secondary to her acting career, mm-hmm. um, even though it was very huge in the sixties. And you know, I, I, I basically reduced them to aspects of some other woman's biography. You know, Hattie Hattie Noel follows Moms Mabley, Anne Mira follows Elaine May. But, you know, their their stories were remarkable too. That was the thing. Anyone I came across, when I dug and dug a little, I was like, oh, my gosh, I've never heard of this person. Or, or I had an idea of who they were, and I had only uh, scratched the surface in, in, in you know, sort of my superficial knowledge of them. And when I learned their stories and what they endured and how, how they got to where they be, you know, eventually um, arrived, I was in awe of all of them. 
Hmm. Well, that actually sets us up for my uh, another question I had for you, which was, what did you learn in the course of researching and writing this book that surprised you? I suppose I could say this about any book, but this one really more than any, any of them. I feel like there is something or three things I learned on every page of it. With Moms Mabley, I, I was vaguely aware that black actors would have appeared in blackface in the teens and 20s, and Moms you know, in early reviews of her work, they say she performed the phrase under cork or mm -hmm. corked mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. um, the the stagecraft was to use burnt um, like a cork and, and uh, apply a little Vaseline and you could you could use it to blacken your face. And this was a tradition in that day. Um, I learned about the party records of the 1950s. Uh, the, these underground LPs that sold in like um, dirty magazine stores and sold millions of copies. And the women who recorded them were often persecuted and arrested and rip, ripped off. You know, these companies were fly by night and Bell Barth probably sold a couple million records and probably only saw about ten twenty thousand dollars $20,000 profit off it. And then Joan Rivers. I knew the longevity of her career. I knew what had happened with her in the 80s with The Tonight Show and Fox. I did not know that she wrote and starred in two Broadway plays. Um, I did not know that she had a syndicated talk show in the 60s that went on for hundreds of episodes. And, you know, the sheer tenacity and, and, and energy of, of her in particular and, and, and Phyllis Diller as well. The two of them, their, their careers were so um, widespread and long and deep. I was really, really impressed with them. I want to go back to what you just said about Joan Rivers having a syndicated talk show that ran for hundreds of episodes. I, I was curious about a couple of these women after reading for the, about them. And so, for example, I went online and I googled Jean Carroll to see if I could find any footage of her. And for, first, I was struck by how carefully she dressed. That's interesting. That's sim emblematic of the era in which she was performing. But it also struck me how little there was. I mean, these women have, have all been, in a, been erased in some circumstances. Were you able to find a lot of footage of these women doing their stand-up, or did you have to rely more on other sources like newspaper articles? You know, as as you move forward in time past the, the, the kinescope era of the late 1940s, um, you can see them. I could not, there, there was an archive that had Jean Carroll's sitcom, which only lasted about 16 episodes in 1952 or 53, but I couldn't get to it during, during COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I could have sat and watched those things on sort of like a, a you know, a little tabletop screen at a library. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's a lot of, a lot of Joan Rivers, Phyllis Diller, Toadie Fields, Elaine May, you know, they had albums, they had um, some of this stuff persists on YouTube, but mm -hmm. Mom's Mabley, very hard to find. Mm -hmm. uh, she's, she, there's a couple of her bits from films that were made in the 40s that I was able to track down online, and um, a live album recorded at the Apollo Theater in the mid-50s, but the first 40 years of her career is un unrecorded. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. You only know what, what she was like late in her career, kind of like a, a blues musician of the 30s. Right. You know, it was like legendary, but un, un, you, know, you can't experience it. So I did have to rely on 
what people said about them um, at the time. Fortunately, during COVID, there were some archives that were really crucial to me that normally I would have had to travel to use mm-hmm. that became available online. So, um, you know, a, a database of uh, historic black newspapers and one of historic uh, Jewish newspapers that you could scan for phrases and, and you know, find accounts of people's performances written, you know, sort of the day after a hundred years ago. Right. So wow. those, those were invaluable. But wow. I, th- I think in many cases I saw as, as, as much as you could see without, you know, doing some real specialty digging. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about an, a theme that you kind of raise in the book a little bit. And yet, yet you've alluded to a little earlier in this conversation you, that women are very much a presence in stand up today, but they still face barriers. It's common knowledge among working comedians that there's a sort of, I don't know, tacit quota of how many women would be on a comedy bill, even at like, a, you know, the biggest clubs, the um, Heliums or the, 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 the comedy store or, you know, Catch a Rising Star, or Caroline's, you know, there are women who run these places, but, you know, audiences seem even in 2022 to want quote-unquote balanced uh, bills bills of performance. There are many all-women shows. There are many one-woman comedy shows. And there are huge women comedy stars. You know, Ali Wong, Amy Schumer, Hannah Gadsby. But even they, you know, uh, in, in the um, conclusion of the book, the book more or less ends with Joan Rivers' ascent. And I follow her career through to her death. But mm-hmm. I don't deal with the women who um, appeared on the scene after Joan. Um, which is 60 years ago. And even today, the the biggest superstar woman comedian, Amy Schumer, is still not paid or um, distributed on the level of her male peers. She's only appeared on the Forbes list of the top 10 earning comedians uh, twice. Mm -hmm. And she is the only woman to have appeared on that list. Mm -hmm. And both times she was... Not you know she was in the middle of the top ten, not not at the top, and both times she followed a ventriloquist oh, in the earnings list. So the equity, the the respect, just seems still to be lacking. Even though you can point to, you know, the likes of of Amy Schumer and say this is a superstar. Why isn't she being paid and circulated as much as say Kevin Hart or Jim Gaffigan? Yeah, no, it's it's I was I was actually watching one of Ali Wong's Netflix specials yesterday and she does a whole bit about, you know, someone like her struggles with lack of paid maternity leave. Yeah, yeah. And that's another thing. The, the women in this book, uh, with one or two exceptions, were mothers, you know, and they had to make choices about their lives, their families and their careers that their male peers did not. And that happens today as well. But in the case of these women, they, they made those choices and pursued their, their career vision anyhow. They had supportive husbands. Often their husbands were their managers. And that seems, you know, you could paint that two ways. It looks a little dicey. You know, this guy is like managing his wife and who is he? On the other hand, there was no playbook. So it wasn't like you could go to an agency and they say, oh, we specialize in women comics, so we'll take care of you. Having your husband as your manager meant there was someone you could trust, at least, you know, in theory. 
And um, <laughs> you got to keep some of the money rather than paying someone else to manage you. So uh, the, the, those, I think those choices still persist for, for women at the highest tiers of comedy. But these, are, these were the first women who had to face them. Yeah. Yeah. And they really, I, I mean, your book does a fantastic job of laying out all the roadblocks and obstacles and little and large indignities these women all faced. Yeah, constant. You know, they didn't have the term microaggressions. But, you know, when Ed Sullivan scolds Jean Carroll for making fun of her husband, <laughs> and she says, well, who should I make fun of? Alan King's wife? <laughs> you realize Sullivan doesn't get the joke. But mm -hmm. the joke is, you would never say that to a man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and yet you say that to a woman. Oh, it's unladylike to make fun of your husband. But this guy gets up and talks about his wife's, you know, uh, lack of libido or, 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 or poor housekeeping, and no one's going to question him. So, you know, it, it's right there. It's in, It's not even subtext. No. <laughs> it's, it's out there in the open. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that clip, and yeah, you could just tell that, that those zingers just flew right over his head. It was so obvious. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, which, which... You know, every, everyone who worked with Sullivan said he had no sense of humor. <laughs> That's unfortunate. <laughs> Well, Sean, which women in working in stand-up today do you think might leave similar legacies to the women in your book? Boy, you know, you, you just have to look at what's being done that's new. So so women like, you know, Hannah Gadsby just, you know, questioning the very form of stand-up and, and saying, you know, there's a kind of um, uh, that, that, that stand-up is inherently masculine in a way that, you know, perhaps some of the detractors of early women comedians would agree with, but she's saying it as a negative, saying this, this set-up punchline, set-up punchline, set-up punchline structure is inherently um, patriarchal. Um, that, that's a, a, a striking idea. You look at women like Tina Fey, who clearly inherited the mantle of Elaine May, um, Amy Schumer, Ali Wong, Tiffany Haddish, who follow Joan Rivers and Phyllis Diller and Moms Mabley, just doing straight stand-up, you know, knock them dead, one joke after another. Um, you know, the, the, the women in this book, uh, I believe, all functioned in isolation, you know, until uh, Phyllis Diller became sort of a well-known national comedian, there was no figure no woman doing comedy who every woman coming up after her could point to because the others were so siloed in their individual fields, mm -hmm. black uh, entertainment, country entertainment, you know, Catskills, Borscht Belt entertainment, nightclubs. And now those paths have been laid. So these women are pioneers, but I, you know, everyone I spoke to who had met Joan Rivers or Phyllis Diller, the younger comedians, I, 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 women I, I spoke to about them, said that they were constantly encouraged by them. And that was great to hear because, you know, it, it's it's a mean business. Male comedians are not known for being generous to their colleagues. <laughs> um, but, but I think the women have been. And I think that these huge careers that are taking place now, you know, there, there are many women who's, who are big names, Sarah Silverman, Amy Schumer, who say, oh, Joan Rivers was, you know, Kathy Griffin, who, who say Joan, Joan was great to me. She took me under her wing. She told me, never do this, always do that. And, and I think that legacy is really, really uh, crucial that these women supported the women who came up behind them and those women themselves learned um, that 
to do that, mm-hmm. you know, in this very still very male dominated field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sean, if if you know if you were hoping for you know one takeaway that readers would take would would get from your book, what would it be? <sighs> Boy, that's a good question. Um, I think that you know we. I, you know, I've I've been a historian of of pop culture in my books, and you know, hit that spot between Pearl Harbor and Woodstock, and, mm-hmm. and I find a lot of stuff in there that still seems relevant today. And it's sometimes easy to take for granted, you know, even though there's inequities and imbalances and you know oversights in modern culture, you know, we can feel like, well, you know, progress is progress and the arc is long, but, you know, true and we're going to get there. But when you remember how far it has come from Moms Mabley um, and, you know, Minnie Pearl and Jean Carroll, those three working in the 40s in complete isolation as novelty acts practically, mm-hmm. uh, that's the lesson, that, that these women um, existed, that they laid down a path, that the path is now, you know, more like a road and, you know, a well-traveled road, in fact, a highway. And it may not be um, ideal, but it, it's it's better than it's ever been. And, and these are the women who, you know, first marked it. And, you know, long live everyone who's, speeding along the highway today, but let's, let's, uh, let's at least name the rest areas after, <laughs> after the pioneers. <laughs> Great. Well, you've been really generous with your time today, Sean. Those were all the questions I had for you. Was there anything else you want folks to know about this book or anything I didn't get to? It's a personal project. I think it's, it's the more I dug, the more I learned, you know, uh, it's always been my, my bent when I find something exciting to me to share it with people and, as I say, there's something I found on every page in this book, and I feel very fortunate that um, these stories were still available when I came around hoping to tell them that they had, you know, someone else hadn't filled the hole on the bookshelf and I got to be the guy. <laughs> Great. Well, I have a note to myself here that you will be appearing at Broadway Books on Wednesday, May 18th at 630. That's right. uh, are there any other Portland area appearances I should know about? Not as of yet, you know, I'm, I may be doing some more, um, you know, I was at Powell's the first week they did readings and people were still a little dicey, you know, I was in conversation with Chelsea Keene and we were up at the front without masks on, but you could see people in the audience taking them off, putting them on, like not <laughs> knowing what to do. So uh, perhaps in the summer I might do something some more, but but that's all I've got on the books right now. Well, thanks again, Sean. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks, Amy. Same to you. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Sean Levy is appearing at Broadway Books on May 18th. I shared a link in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.